0: Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. We are back for season four, and today's episode begins with an exciting announcement about what we've been so busy working on. After that, we discuss plenty of new research about plant-based proteins, how fat-free mass impacts mortality risk, and how your Myers-Briggs personality type dictates the right form of intermittent fasting for you. One of those topics is less serious than the others, so the challenge is to, uh, to try to pick out that one. We've got some practical training tips from a Coach's Corner segment, and we've got a Q&A segment that covers a lot of different topics, including mouthguards for lifting, sugar-sweetened beverages, ATP and phosphatidic acid supplementation, stretching, flexibility, adjusting your training based on your calorie intake, and more. Finally, to close out the show, Greg's got some great cooking resources to bring to everyone's attention. As always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your one and only full-time professional host, Eric Trexler. But today, uh, as we kick off season four, I'm joined by a special temporary guest co-host. His name's Greg Knuckles. Greg, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, it's been a while. We we had a, a fireside chat. Well, not we, you had a fireside chat episode a while back, but we've we've been kind of off the grid for a while. So I feel like some degree of explanation is in order. Uh, we have been busy. Of course, we've been doing a lot of writing and stuff like that, but we've also been putting together a diet app, uh, which is pretty exciting. So, uh, here's my, we're not going to get into too many details cause it's, you know, it's still a ways off, uh, before we put it out there, but the way I view it. So Greg, you're a numbers boy. You like numbers. You like analytics.
1: I refer to myself as a numbers man, but uh, okay, f- feel feel free to continue. Fair enough. Well,
0: I'm lazy. Uh, you might have picked up from some of my recipes over the years. I'm not really bad into putting a lot of effort into my cooking and my tracking. And actually, you know, to be honest, the reason that the reason I eat the way I eat is because I'm too lazy. Like I-, I developed my my eating habits of having like three ingredients per meal. That was because I used to track everything I ate. And I was like, who could possibly have the time to have six items in a meal? You know, six ingredients, that's insane. Cut that in half and we're talking. Uh, so the goal with this app in my, from my perspective is to satisfy your love for numbers and data and analytics while also appeasing people as disgustingly lazy as me. And I feel like as we continue working with it, we're getting close there.
1: No, I I agree. Uh, Definitely hard plus one for the laziness. Um, I probably historically should have tracked my nutrition far more than I did. Uh, but yeah, it it was the same sort of thing. Like the, the process of tracking was very cumbersome. Um, I, I previously used my fitness pal and I, uh, like on one hand, it's cool that they had a big database of stuff. And on the other hand, it sucked that the database was like 90% incorrect entries. And so, (laughs) you know. You'd have to like sift through four or five entries before you're just like, yeah, those those macros actually seem like the right ones. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I, I have previously tracked quite a bit and have never been able to stick with it for very long. Because either I would start drifting towards what you're describing, where, you know, you just eat like four foods, you know what entries you use. Um... And that's not sustainable for me because I do like to get a little bit more adventurous in the kitchen. Uh, or, you know, I'd just be like super annoyed and pissed off taking like fucking 20 minutes to track every meal. Um, so yeah, the the app that we're working on with uh, and by we're working on, I mean, we kind of supplied the the raw materials in terms of like information and, and approach for adjusting things. Uh, and our developers, Corey and Rebecca, have been doing the vast majority of, of the actual work, uh, obviously, but, uh, man, the, the pre alpha build already is so sick. Like e- even if I didn't have financial stake in this, um, I, I think I would still view it as like head and shoulders above what I've used previously.
0: Yeah. And, and that's a good clarification. Like, uh, I think it's a pretty slick macro tracker, like as it stands, like a good food logging app, but w- we laid the foundation for how it actually makes adjustments. So it, it doesn't, it's not just a food tracker. It also, you know, you can put in your goal for, for managing your weight and it'll kind of coach you through the process in terms of dictating your, your macro target. So uh, there's a lot of ins and outs and we're pretty stoked about it, but that's, that's what we've been busy with. And uh, you'll hear about it more in the future as it comes a little bit closer to market. Um, in the meantime, if you really want to support us, everybody knows how to do it. You go to bulk supplements.com, you put in the promo code SBS pod. Um, that's one of the things I'm most proud of in my career is seeing how, how much generational wealth we've helped our listeners develop uh, <laughs> from that 5% discount that you get. It's been crazy to see everybody flourishing and, and making so much money and investing it back into their communities Uh, It's been really rewarding. So keep using that promo code and keep reaping those enormous benefits. Um, You know, that that honestly sounds like a a good news segment in and of itself. But we do have a good news segment as well. And I'm going to start off with that. I'm going to keep it short and sweet. Um, Vaccine numbers are looking good in the United States. Uh, Hasn't necessarily been a perfect rollout. But, uh, you know, it's it's been very impressive. I've been really stoked to see that. And given that COVID's been on the top of mind for about, you know, 13, 14 months at this point. Uh,
1: It's short, it's simple, but damn, that's some good news to see people getting vaccines. It's really cool. Absolutely. So, so my good news, uh, which I'm presenting without a shred of sarcasm or irony is uh, so, I mean, there, there was a relatively recent election in the U S the Trump administration, went out, the Biden administration came in, and longtime listeners of the podcast will know,, uh, we actually had a pretty close advisory relationship with the Trump administration. Uh, their Their FDA was basically at our beck and call Any time that we asked for a clarification for something spe- specifically related maybe to the legality of CBD supplements, you know they they'd come out with a clarification uh, like within a week. So, you know, we we were concerned that our access to the halls of power might be threatened uh, by the incoming administration. However, um, that is not the case. So, when uh, when the Biden administration came in, I, I sent him a letter. Um, said like, "Hey, look, Mr. Joe, uh, we understand we understand that uh, the previous administration did allow." some uh some weed heads, some people who toked the reefer to work in the White House, which uh quite honestly, terrible idea. I, I can't understand why any why anyone would allow that. So he said, hey, maybe uh you know, if if there's one big line item that can really uh clean up federal policy, like if there's one thing you could do to improve American society, it would definitely be to get all of the podheads out of the White House. Uh, and the Biden administration 100% obliged. Um, <laughs> the actual news story, honestly, I find pretty hilarious. The uh, the uh, administration asked people coming in to just, like, fill out a form. And, like, one of the questions is, have you ever, like, recreationally used marijuana? And the people who said yes, like, within months, they basically said, like, yeah, get the fuck out of here. We don't want you. <laughs> and honestly... Uh, so now, <laughs> the obviously the last part was sarcasm, uh, but this isn't sarcasm. Honestly, I do kind of think that that's, <laughs> that's kind of a good thing because like anyone who's fucking stupid enough to tell the truth to the federal government about using drugs that are still illegal in the federal level... I don't want them in the government. It's like
0: questionable judgment.
1: Yeah, I I don't care if someone smokes weed, but if someone is going to tell the federal government that they smoke weed, I I don't want them anywhere close to the to the levers of power. That that shows zero common sense that they would tell the truth about that. Um. So anyway that that's my uh, that's my joke. Good I, news story. I, I will say, um, <laughs> it's you know when we
0: started this podcast, we mentioned that we wanted to follow in the footsteps of Rush Limbaugh, rest in peace. <laughs> and he he used to always remind people, you know, these politicians come and go. They serve their term, they hit the road, but I'm always here. And it's nice that we've kind of replicated that. You know, when, when we would ask the Trump administration for some clarification, we get it. And now it looks like uh, the Biden administration is also kind of,
1: understanding the power dynamic there which is good yeah yeah for sure um but no so so my actual good news story and this is not not a pure and unfiltered good news story but from me i don't think anyone expects that anymore uh there's there's a tinge of schadenfreude here um but there was another uh retraction that came through with the uh the the barbalo investigation that i that i was a part of we haven't talked about this a ton on the podcast yet because I I feel like this isn't a story I want to drag out across you know half a dozen episodes. Anytime that there's new information that comes in, I, I think that this would be a good thing to cover fully in depth uh, once everything is fully concluded. Um, but basically, uh, last year, uh, myself and several other people. Uh, including Andrew Vygotsky, James Steele, Brad Schoenfeld, James Heathers, uh, James Fisher, we... uh, Krieger. Yeah, yeah, James Krieger. Too many Jameses, far too many Jameses. Uh, We we all kind of like independently noticed that there was a fair amount of data that looked... uh, somewhat atypical coming out of one particular lab group uh in rapid succession we we dug into it we found some things that said that that were very statistically anomalous uh i'll just i'll just leave it at that um
0: patterns in the data that were very improbable
1: correct correct um if you want the the full story on that as it stands currently uh you can go to strongerbysciencecom barbalio. that'll be linked in the show notes uh if you want to read about you know what what we found when poking around in that data but the good news is uh well the bad news is that <laughs> a lot of those studies that had uh it what what were in my opinion very strange looking things uh m- most of the journals haven't retracted the studies and haven't even published expressions of concern Um, But we did recently get another retraction from uh, Medicine and Science and Sport and Exercise, uh, and it was to give uh, Bruce Gladden and the editorial team at MSSE credit. They published a really, really strong retraction statement. One of my general complaints with retractions often is that uh, the journals often try to use retractions to save face. They... They'll basically just use like the most wishy-washy language imaginable, not really give any details, um, to, to not make it look like, oh man, we accidentally let something bad slip through. Uh, so the, the MSSC retraction statement, I'll I'll just read it. It's, it's pretty short. Um, but it's, this is how I think retraction statements should read. Uh, so, so all the credit in the world to, to Dr. Gladden and his team, So it says, uh, the editor-in-chief of Medicine and Science in Sport and Exercise is retracting this article because of concerns about the veracity of the data. Two authors of the article raised questions regarding the data in the article and requested that it be retracted. Those two authors were James Fisher and James Steele. Um, The other authors and their institutions were contacted and permitted to respond. Uh, Those authors and institutions reported no irregularities in the conduct of the research, However, at the request of the Editor-in-Chief of Medicine and Science and Sport and Exercise, four content area experts with statistical expertise investigated the data in detail, considered the author and institutional responses, and provided evaluations. Based on their report and all pertinent information gathered, the data were judged to be highly unusual, correspondingly dubious, and insufficiently trustworthy. Medicine and Science and Sport and Exercise is a member of the Committee on Publication Ethics, or COPE, uh, and is committed to the very highest standards in publication ethics. Uh, MSSE has followed the processes set forth by COPE for handling of such matters. Um, So yeah, laid out the investigation that took place, the reasons for the retraction. Very, very good retraction statement. uh, For people just kind of like... Keeping score and and people who followed uh, chatter in the fitness industry a couple years ago, um, the there were two volume studies that came out of that lab around this time. So comparing training with 5, 10, 15, and 20 sets per week, uh, generally finding greater hypertrophy and strength outcomes with lower training volume, so 5 or 10 sets per week, uh, than higher training volumes. So pretty large drop-offs. From 10 to 15 sets per week and 15 to 20 sets per week uh, and, and those findings were pretty anomalous um, you know most most research does tend to find more hypertrophy with moderate to higher volumes uh, both of those studies have now been retracted one of the other so the, the the two studies were basically mirror images of each other one in males one in females the male volume study was retracted last year. Now the female volume study has been retracted. Uh, so both of those are off the books now, which uh, in my opinion, helps unmuddy the water in that general area of research quite a bit. so that that's a kind of fringe benefit here. Um, <laughs> makes makes the whole like volume and hypertrophy body of literature uh, a, a little bit less confusing, a little bit easier to parse. Uh, so anyway, in my opinion, a uh, big win for publication ethics i feel <laughs> t- to some degree kind of personally vindicated uh because the whole investigation did take a lot of time and a lot of effort so get uh, another retraction coming out of it uh for me personally is is gratifying on a personal level um and yeah uh msse is the most prestigious journal that any of the papers from that lab group were published in, so uh, the the MSSE retraction is is pretty big on that front as well. Um, and hopefully, on the back of that, some of the other journals will reevaluate some of the decisions they've made up to this point.
0: Yeah, and whenever this topic comes up, I think it's always helpful to clarify a couple big things. It's it's very common uh, for people to kind of misinterpret the, these conversations a bit, and you know, this type of thing isn't some kind of vendetta that you guys have. It's not settling a score. It's not promoting, uh, you know, some kind of, uh, approach to training that you all share. It's just about making sure that the literature we're making inferences about, uh, is, is rock solid, making sure that all the, the data that make up the literature are, are really robust and reliable that we can make inferences from. So, so, uh, you know, having, um, uh, having clarifications and corrections and retractions is part of the process of making sure that we're interpreting literature, uh, that we can have really uh, strong conclusions from, you know, really robust data. And the other important thing about your investigation, I think you guys did a remarkably good job uh, really hammering this point home in all of your, the white paper, the article on the Stronger by Science site, is that it's not an accusation and it's not about why or how you know what i mean so a lot of people hear this they start making inferences about who did what and who's accusing who of what and that that really has nothing to do with it you know you guys i think made a really compelling case in your work that it doesn't matter why or how the data came to be this way but they have patterns that are highly improbable and therefore, we have to be really cautious about yeah, like,
1: like one in 10 billion, one in 100 billion. Type yes. Improbable. Yeah. Yeah. Calculated, not, extremely low probability. Yeah not, yeah. not like one in a thousand because no. there's thousands of studies that get done. Like one in a thousand shit's going to happen all the time. But like one in several quadrillion, that's the sort of things you shouldn't necessarily expect to see often, if ever.
0: Exactly, and I think you guys did a great job keeping focused on the the entire purpose of this thing was to ensure, uh, you know, that we've got a really robust body of literature to make inferences about, and that it, you know, it's not an accusation thing; it's not about, uh, you know, vendettas or settling scores. I think you guys you guys did a great job with that, and just pointing out straightforward: these are very improbable observations, and therefore, you know, it's probably not safe to be using these to make inferences about how we program training off this data. Uh, So props to you guys for doing such a great job with that. And props to MSSE for, you know, for looking at it objectively and saying, okay, if the question is about probabilities, let's bring in people who, who really have a good understanding of this statistical stuff and say, you know, what do you think of the veracity of this data? How generalizable is it? How robust is it? Should it stay in the literature or not? You know, so props to everybody involved there. And now we've got some feats of strength.
1: Uh, yeah. So we haven't done a normal episode in like two or three months. So a lot of strong people have done a lot of strong stuff. So I'm absolutely going to not talk about all of them because then feats of strength would be like two and a half hours long. Uh, but but some some uh recent strong person things in in the last month that that I thought were uh were pretty cool. One is uh. The, the next time uh, Raw Nationals rolls around, the squat world record in the 83-kilo class, uh, I'm locking this prediction in, that record will fall. I'm pretty sure it's 313 kilos, and uh, there are two people just toying with that amount of weight and training. So uh, Russell Ori, who currently has the world record in that class, uh, he squatted 310 or 683 for a set of four. So uh, around this time last year I think he was setting a ton of squat PRs but like the training reps were a little high but uh a lot of folks myself included uh were just like hey he's always been able to get lifts in on the platform before this probably isn't a big deal um anyway when he did compete after that just insane looking training cycle he did have issues with hitting depth on the platform and so uh this time around he's hitting similar numbers but to depth that looks pretty good so uh yeah it's it's looking like he's gonna put some insane number on the platform um but once again in the same weight class i need to give a shout out to jamar royster uh raleigh guy uh great dude doesn't get nearly as much recognition as he deserves in that same weight class i believe he also looks like he's about to Absolutely shit on the record. Um, He recently squatted uh, 733 for a double in training. That's uh, 332 and a half kilos at 83, which is uh, 183. Um, That's a lot of weight. Uh, And and I think Russell and Jamar's squats currently are very neck and neck. Uh, And Man, I could see that world record going north of uh, of 750 or 340 uh, the next time both of them get on the platform. So, uh, as a fan of the sport, that will be exciting to see. Uh, as as a Raleigh Homer uh, and as someone who knows Jamar, I hope Jamar's the one who comes out on top. But either way, I, I think we're going to see just an absolutely insane squat number in that class soon. Um, Let's get some equipped lifting action in the mix. I haven't talked about equipped lifting in quite a while on feats of strength, Uh, but Jimmy Cobb, uh, I assume that's how you pronounce his name, K-O-L-B. I think that's generally Cobb, either Cobb or Kolb. Um, He benched uh, 490 kilos or 1,080 pounds in single ply, uh, which broke his own world record in the class. Uh, And that is that is wild to me uh like i I know equipment has gotten better over time but i remember when i got into lifting uh gene uh rishlock and uh scott mendelson were still the only two people who had ever benched a thousand in multiply and then uh ryan Canelli came in and for my money the last really solid multiply world record was probably Canelli's 1075 uh, after that, a lot of the lockouts started looking kind of soft, kind of iffy, uh, whatever the, that world record is now in excess of 500 kilos. But, uh, the, the 1075 was the last one that I was really impressed with Jimmy Cobb's, uh, 1080 and single ply, very solid, um, full lockout controlled it. Well, um, not soft elbows. So very, very impressive bench there, um, I mean, just to support a thousand pounds in your hands, I cannot fathom that. Uh, And to bench it in single ply, doubly impressive. So very, very cool stuff there. Uh, I know I'm going to butcher this name, but uh, Tomas Hotala, I believe, uh, IPF lifter, pulled 420 kilos or 925 pounds in training. Uh I believe he competes in the 105 kilo class or 231 and and walks around at like 108 109 give or take. Um looked pretty looked solid. Looked like there was a little bit more left in the tank. Uh if he were to put that number on the platform, that would be I believe the heaviest deadlift ever pulled on a stiff bar period. Um in and, and certainly the heaviest deadlift ever pulled in the IPF or uh, in IPF affiliate, the current highest, uh, the current highest in an IPF affiliate was, uh, Mikhail Kuklaev back when he competed tested, he pulled, uh, 920 or, or, uh, yeah, 920 pounds or 417 and a half kilos. at super heavy. So, uh, the fact that someone is, is exceeding that a weight class or two weight classes down, uh, truly wild stuff, Uh, his, his deadlift is a thing of beauty and you should check that out. Um, and then, uh, the, the last one I want to end on is, uh, Hunter Henderson, very, very strong, very impressive, uh, untested female lifter, uh, squatted 615 in training, uh, very smooth. Her form is immaculate, like one of the most efficient squats I've ever seen, um, you can count the number of women who have, uh, squatted that much. And this is raw with wraps, by the way. Uh, you can count the number of women who've done that on one hand. Um, and she's, she's a middleweight. So, I mean, like, uh, I, I have no idea where her squat is going in the coming years, but that, that 615 she hit looked very easy and very solid, um, Oh, actually, I said that was the last one there. There's one more that I'm going to mention just because like 20 people on Instagram sent this to me and said like, oh, you got to talk about this on feats of strength. Um, Joe Kovacs, a uh, shot put thrower from the good old US and a so not a power lifter, not a weightlifter, someone for whom the squat is an accessory lift to uh, get better at throwing Uh, a large metal ball he squatted uh, 870 for a set of four (laughs) Um, so one thing to note two things to note one it was filmed in the Buckeyes weight room so uh, I I feel like that's I feel like we do have to apply a correction I I assume most people can probably squat an extra 100 150 pounds just through walking just by walking through those doors Uh, also the lift the lift itself was filmed at the worst possible angle to see basically anything about the squat um it it was filmed from dead in front and very highly elevated above the lifter i think i think he probably squatted like fairly high um but again it's it's impossible to tell for sure from the angle but also like who fucking cares he's he's a shot put thrower Uh, there is no required squat depth, uh, when you are throwing shot put at a highly competitive level, uh, that is not what they contest. But regardless, I mean, it was, it it was like, I I would say a good faith effort at decent depth. Uh, and so seeing that type of weight move for four reps for someone where squatting isn't their sport, uh, absolutely insane. Uh, elite throwers are so strong and also so explosive um it it doesn't make sense uh if you want to see just some some very very large people do insanely athletic stuff uh you should check out uh, shot put and discus throwers they're just just freak athletic specimens uh and and this is this is one of the more impressive lifts I've, I've seen from a thrower.
0: All right, moving on with the show. Uh, I know we each have some research that we want to talk about. I'll go ahead and start. Um, I basically need to begin with a big apology uh, to the Game Changers universe and everybody associated with it, uh, James Cameron, everybody. Uh, so I, there, there's that old phrase, eating crow, you know, when you're kind of admitting you were wrong and I'm eating... Uh, plant-based, maybe soy crow substitute here. Um, One of the things I've been really looking into lately, I'm being sarcastic, by the way, I would never apologize for anything earnestly. Um, So I've been looking into plant-based proteins and it's basically been through mass. There've been a couple studies the last few months that have looked at muscle protein synthesis over a few days with a vegan diet versus an omnivorous diet. Uh, And then another study looking at actual hypertrophy over several weeks with a vegan diet versus an omnivorous diet. And, you know, I feel like ever since I got into the whole evidence-based fitness thing, it's been essentially unanimous. Everybody agrees. If you're looking at a plant-based protein versus an animal-based protein, the animal-based one is going to be superior when it comes to stimulating muscle protein synthesis. But there is some new stuff coming out in the the plant-based protein research that I think is really fascinating and requires kind of an update of our uh, the way we discuss plant-based proteins here. So the Game Changers documentary, we've talked about it in the past on the show, uh, far more than it deserved. It made a bunch of kind of uh, exaggerated claims, in my opinion, about exactly what the benefits of a plant-based diet or a vegan diet might be. Um, But that doesn't mean that that we should uh, discredit those diets altogether. They still have plenty of very positive attributes. There's still plenty of great reasons to adopt a more plant-based or a vegan diet, Uh, and they absolutely are a viable uh, dietary strategy. Uh, There's no question about that. Um, The question is, if you switch from an omnivorous diet to a vegan diet or a heavily plant-based diet what type of sacrifices might you be making in the process? You know, what are the pros and cons? And what types of accommodations do you have to make in response to removing some key food groups from your diet? You know, removing, uh, you know, depending on what kind of diet you go on, you might be removing dairy, eggs, poultry, meat, and, and, and so on. So the question is, what are you giving up when you switch over to a vegan diet? And is it actually less favorable when it comes to, uh, supporting gains in muscle mass, supporting, uh, muscle protein synthesis and things of that nature. And a couple studies have come along the last few months that have really kind of, uh, provided a lot more insight, a more nuanced understanding of how we can compare plant-based and animal-based protein. So ever since I got into this whole, uh, Evidence based nutrition world, especially when it comes to the lifting uh, side of that world, it's been pretty much agreed upon that animal protein sources are better than plant based protein sources. And there's, there's really been a few key areas where that conclusion is drawn from. So, first, there's just very straightforward uh, scores for different proteins. There, there are a lot of different ways that you can assess. Uh, quantitatively, a protein's quality score. And it usually comes down to its amino acid profile. Is it lacking any key essential amino acids? If so, what is the rate-limiting essential amino acid? Uh, How digestible is the protein? It comes down to simple things like that. And and so generally speaking, animal protein sources are going to be higher quality in these scoring systems than a plant-based protein source. Another area where we draw this conclusion is based on extremely acute interventions. so looking at studies where they observe uh you know muscle protein synthesis after a single dose or a single serving of a plant protein or an animal protein and when you look at these protein scores when you look at these very acute study designs looking at a few hours of muscle protein synthesis uh it's very clear why people lean toward favoring animal based proteins uh they definitely have higher protein scores, uh, quality scores, and they definitely in an acute setting, uh, induce larger muscle protein synthesis responses. Um, but it's always important to recognize in these types of scenarios that those aren't the true outcomes we're interested in. You know, we're generally interested in seeing if I'm on an omnivorous diet or a vegan diet, does one impact my ability to make gains more than the other? Is one going to more effectively support my ability to get stronger and build muscle? Uh, And so there have been some studies over the last few months that have looked at this plant versus animal protein question from a variety of different perspectives. Um, So first of all, if you want to get caught up to speed on the muscle protein synthesis stuff very acutely, uh, there's a fantastic review paper by Van Vliet and colleagues, and I'll link that in the show notes. Uh, off air, Greg and I had a, a serious discussion about how to pronounce that last name. I'm deferring to him. Might be Van Vliet, might be Van Vliet. Uh, perhaps we'll never know. But if we, if we find out, uh, who am I kidding? We're not going to update that on the show. But uh, anyway, I, I, I
1: think that would be a fun correction to <laughs> to add in.
0: Yeah. So maybe we will, but certainly no disrespect to the author. It's a really great uh, review paper that we'll link. Um, now there was another, there, there's actually a, a meta analysis, not a review paper, but a, a full blown meta analysis here, a uh, systematic review with meta analytic techniques applied that kind of got away from the, you know, acute single dose, mot- uh, muscle protein synthesis stuff and actually looked at longitudinal changes in strength and body composition, but this time looking at supplement interventions. So instead of looking at the acute response to a single dose, it was like, okay, if we give one group soy protein and the other group whey protein and they're lifting and we observe over several weeks, who's making better gains here? So, so it was a very different approach. But again, it's important to recognize that we're still in the context of people's typical diet here. So this isn't vegan diet versus omnivorous diet. This is with whatever you already eat, we're either going to give you a scoop of soy protein each day or a scoop of whey protein or something like that. Plant source versus animal source. And uh, this meta-analysis, another one I'll link in the show notes, is by Lim and colleagues. And it was actually interesting because while the acute muscle protein synthesis stuff is very decidedly in favor of animal-based proteins, that gap isn't quite as big within this context when we look at longitudinal changes in the context of, you know, uh, a normal diet where we're just supplementing one protein powder versus the other. And so when looking at the results of this meta-analysis, you could probably work your way toward concluding that there was a slight advantage for the animal-based proteins over the plant-based proteins, but you got to do a little bit of work to get there. Um, There there was a decent amount of heterogeneity with some of these uh, subgroups in these forest plots, and even, you know, what they found was if you look at, for example, lean mass in raw units versus uh, relative units, you know, th- there there were some different results there where animal-based proteins were better in one case and no different in the other. But then when they did their sensitivity analysis and, and they tried to assess how robust those findings were, in both cases they flipped. So, I mean, from a statistical perspective, you could make a defensible but not necessarily rock-solid case that there was a slight benefit favoring the animal-based proteins here. But in practical terms, you know, just to put some actual units to this, if you look at how much additional lean mass was gained in this meta-analysis with the animal-based protein supplements versus the plant-based, we're talking about 0.2 kilograms. You know, we're talking about a very uh, arguably negligible amount of additional lean mass accretion. So, uh, not a particularly strong finding indicating that animal, animal-based animal protein supplement interventions are far superior to plant-based supplement interventions. But again, we're talking about one single serving of protein here uh, versus actually switching over to a totally vegan diet, two very, very different things. So in the last couple months, there have been uh, a couple papers that have come out that uh, are getting a little bit closer to what we're really interested in. So uh, with this particular question, so there's a paper by Montine and colleagues that I'll link in the show notes here, and they were looking at two different high protein diets. So one was a, a high protein vegan diet that was heavily supplemented with mycoprotein, which is like a a fungus derived protein source that has a pretty good amino acid profile. Uh, and then if it was being compared to just a high-protein omnivorous diet. So in both cases, they were having, I believe it was, yeah, it was 1.8 grams per kilogram of protein per day, which is plenty. And throughout, it was a three-day intervention. Throughout the intervention, they were doing uh, some uh, resistance exercise, you know, along with these high-protein interventions, and they were looking at muscle protein synthesis. But instead of looking at you know, the response to a single dose or a single meal, they were looking at it over the three-day period. And in this case, uh, the mycoprotein-supplemented vegan diet supported muscle protein synthesis over the study period uh, quite similarly when compared to the omnivorous diet, which was really interesting. But again, this is, you know, three days is better than looking at a single meal response in terms of what we're trying to make inferences about, but it's still not truly a longitudinal hypertrophy study. But fortunately, uh, very recently, within the last couple of months, there was a really nice study that came out by Javier Lorraine. And what they did was they looked at, again, high protein diets, vegan versus omnivorous, and both diet groups uh, were having 1.6 grams per kilogram per day of protein. It was a 12-week training intervention where they were doing resistance training twice per week. And like I said, over these 12 weeks, what they're trying to see is is the omnivorous diet actually leading to more hypertrophy or better strength gains than a vegan diet? And in this case, the vegan diet was heavily supplemented again, but it was supplemented with soy protein instead of mycoprotein and soy protein again uh, has a pretty favorable amino acid profile and good digestibility as well. So among plant-based protein sources, it's a pretty high quality protein source. Uh, a really a really impressive strength of this study. Uh first of all they were looking at younger people uh which you, you don't see that some sometimes these uh dietary interventions they focus on uh populations that are susceptible to sarcopenia and and it's, it's nice to every now and then you know mix in some studies where they're looking at younger folks who might be um might be a little bit more similar to our our listenership or our readership it's stronger by science. So we're talking about people in their 20s here, healthy folks. And uh, yeah, so over this 12-week intervention, they're lifting weights. And this was nice because it gave a lot of different perspectives. So it measured a performance outcome being leg press one rep max, but it also looked at uh, whole body, or I'm not whole body, but whole leg lean mass via DEXA. It looked at hypertrophy at the whole muscle level via ultrasound. And it also looked at hypertrophy at the fiber level. Uh, So it was kind of looking at every layer of hypertrophy, whether you're looking at the leg, the muscle, or the fiber itself. And what was really fascinating here was just like the previous study looking at protein synthesis over multiple days, this particular study seemed to indicate that the the vegan diet and the omnivorous diet led to relatively similar gains when we're talking about the strength outcomes and the hypertrophy outcomes. And so uh, I, I think it's really... It's really important to recognize here that they did everything right uh, in terms of trying to make sure that the vegan diet uh, effectively supported hypertrophy. So in the past, we've talked a little bit about protein distribution. And in this case, the vegan and the the omnivorous groups, they all had uh, four protein servings per day, kind of spread out through the day. Each serving was was around or over 0.3 grams per kilogram of protein each serving provided plenty of essential amino acids, each serving provided plenty of leucine, two to three grams of leucine per serving. So they were taking this vegan diet, they were using a high protein source being soy protein, and they were spreading these protein boluses throughout the day uh, in a way that is really consistent with our current understanding of protein distribution. So, uh, you know, the important thing to keep in mind when we look at the the two most recent studies here showing that vegan diets have similar effects on hypertrophy, we have to keep in mind that they were high protein interventions. And we have to keep in mind that they were using uh, protein supplements that were that had pretty good digestibility and pretty good amino acid profiles. So uh, we have to interpret these findings within that context. But I, I think it's really important to highlight these studies because they indicate that the the pretty large gap we see when we compare proteins based on their protein quality score or their acute effect on muscle protein synthesis. That large gap seems to really, really shrink based on the evidence that's coming out recently when we look at the stuff we actually care about, which is if I'm consuming this diet versus that diet and I'm lifting hard, over time is one going to actually support my lifting goals better than the other. Uh, So, We on the show, we've always talked about vegan diets as being a very viable approach. But we've talked about, okay, what kind of accommodations do you have to make, you know, there are some micronutrients that on a fully vegan diet, the bioavailability is lower, or because of the food sources that are eliminated, they're harder to get into the diet, there are some accommodations that ought to be made when it comes to putting together a really solid vegan diet or heavily plant based diet. One of the accommodations we've always talked about is like, well, you know you're giving up some value on your protein sources, so you might need to increase your total protein intake or do a variety of different uh, protein-related strategies to overcome that. These studies, in my opinion, are at, at, at the very least indicating if your total protein intake is high enough, 1.6, 1.8, two grams per kilograms per day, uh, and you know, you're lifting throughout the intervention, And your vegan diet contains protein sources that are pretty high quality, things like soy, things like mycoprotein. You don't have any major essential amino acid gaps. You're you're distributing your protein relatively sensibly throughout the day. Within those constraints, I think these studies give us a much more favorable view of the potential for plant-based or vegan diets to really effectively support hypertrophy. Now, if you wanted to be extra cautious... You don't lose anything by applying some of the accommodations we've mentioned in the past. So if, if you basically say, well, I might be lacking this amino acid or that amino acid, uh, I, I might be sacrificing a little bit here in protein quality. Maybe I'm going to bump my protein when I switch from omnivorous to vegan. Maybe I'm going to bump it from 1.8 to 2 grams per kilogram per day. If you want to make that adjustment, you're probably not losing anything in the process. It might be viewed as kind of an extra cautious approach, Um, but I I think it's important to highlight that these studies show some pretty favorable outcomes with these plant-based diets, as long as you've got some decent protein sources and you're distributing that protein pretty effectively, and you've got plenty of protein. There, there are some protein uh, interventions in the past that indicated that these animal-based omnivorous diets, I should say do a little bit better than ovo-lacto-vegetarian diets when total protein intake is pretty low and not matched between groups. But that's not super surprising uh, when when you consider uh, the the discrepancies between a slightly higher protein intake, more protein coming from higher quality sources. Within those constraints, uh, you know, there might be a bigger gap. But when you've got enough total protein and some solid protein sources, I think these are... um, These are some really encouraging findings for, for, uh, supporting plant-based proteins. Uh, again, some of the other claims in in game changers, you know, still need some support. Uh, not sure if we're ever going to get the study we need on those nocturnal emissions, but, uh, (laughs)
1: emissions. (laughs) (laughs) You, you, You just cut out meat and just all night long, you're just shooting fat ropes.
0: Nocturnal erections.
1: There we go. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um. Haven't seen that study yet. Maybe they'll fund it, but uh, but yeah, it's it, it's I think an important update on plant based protein uh, because it, it's looking a little bit more favorable in some of these more uh, more relevant applications.
1: Now, yeah, that that makes sense to me. I, I think uh, j- just on a related note, the next time a really big uh, a really big just nutrition documentary of any kind that Royals, the fitness industry comes out. We should have a movie night. Uh, Cause I, I feel like we could, we could really farm that for content. I think people respond pretty well to, to our game changers content. Um, and I, I, I just feel like we could put together a, a lot of superior bits. If both of us were in on the joke, uh, I still haven't seen game changers never fucking will. Uh, I will, I will not watch that movie alone, but I, I, I do think, uh, I, I do think we can make a fun movie night out of, we, uh, out of the next big nutrition documentary.
0: Well, first of all, you shouldn't watch the documentary. You should watch the 18 hour, uh, YouTube <laughs> dissection of it. Um, because, I mean, you really, the, the two-hour movie is just the highlights at that point. You really God, gotta, I, I had forgotten about you, that. You got to dig deeper. Uh, <laughs> but you know what we should do is do some type of, uh, like, a live stream where we can watch it with people. That would be cool. That would be a lot of fun. We'll have to look into how our dumbasses can try to make that technology work. I, I
1: think I could figure it out. That's like, everybody's, like, streaming stuff these days. It can't be that hard to uh, figure that out. A lot of people I know of who are a lot dumber than us have Twitch channels. <laughs> that's,
0: that's what I was kind of getting at yeah. without,
1: without saying it. But yeah, pretty much. I, I, I am on this podcast to say the quiet part out loud. Yeah. Are, are we ready to move on?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think you've got a, a little bit of research to cover as well.
1: Yeah, I, I do. Um, so I want to talk about a recent study by Settlemyer and colleagues Uh, the title of which is Relation of Body Fat Mass and Fat-Free Mass to Total Mortality, colon results from seven prospective cohort studies uh, that will be linked in the show notes. Um, And and so I wanted to talk about this because I think it does a pretty good job of clearing up a a pretty common argument that I see in in the fitness industry and a lot of comment sections etc anytime that BMI is brought up. So um, if someone mentions BMI that's kind of like uh, it's like a, a siren song that is going to attract probably 40% of power lifters and bodybuilders on the planet into the comment section to say like BMI' is dumb uh, it, it can't tell the difference between fat and fat and muscle. Uh, like the why anyone puts any weight at all on this metric is beyond me., uh, modern medicine is stupid, BMI is stupid, et cetera, et cetera. And then to that, you'll often see the common counterclaim of uh, well, no, actually, uh, uh, BMI doesn't distinguish between fat and muscle, but it is in fact actually still bad to be at a uh, relatively high BMI. Even if a lot of that is coming from muscle, um, like it, it, that's still bad for you. And often the purported mechanism people will throw out there is that just if your body is larger, period, uh, that's going to put more strain on your heart just because you need to perfuse more total tissue and that's going to make your heart work harder, uh, which I guess theoretically might make it give out sooner uh, but but anyway that's that's the common uh, counterclaim I see
0: that that uh, logic is dangerously getting close to the old Donald Trump theory of just
1: conserving your heartbeats <laughs> well yeah I mean that that's obviously one uh, one fatal flaw in that idea uh, the other thing is if we want to be a little bit more uh, a little bit more rigorous about it um, so uh, it, it is true that if you have... Just more body mass, period. Uh, You do need blood vessels to feed that body mass. But ultimately, uh, in major disclaimer, don't take anything I'm about to say as medical advice. Talk to your doctor, etc. But ultimately, the thing that's going to affect load on your heart, strain on your heart, is the blood pressure that you have and the resistance that your heart is dealing with and trying to pump blood out against. Uh, and so here's here's some nerd shit for you. I'm going to badly mispronounce this, um, but if if we're going to talk about how hard the heart has to work, we need to talk about the resistance that it's encountering. Uh, and you can calculate that using the hagen Poisson equation. Uh, I, f- French people don't tell me I pronounced that wrong because I know I did. Uh, But anyway, that equation is what you would use to like calculate resistance in any sort of vessel where you're pushing fluid through, be that blood vessels, be that pipes, whatever. Uh, And so that equation is uh, eight times the length of the vessel times the viscosity of whatever liquid you're dealing with divided by pi times the radius of the vessel squared. Uh, and so it's it's directly proportional to the length of the vessel. So basically, if you have more total length of blood vessels that is going to increase the resistance your heart is dealing with. But it's inversely proportional to the radius of the vessel raised to the fourth power. So that's going to have the radius of the vessel has a way outsized effect on resistance compared to length. So you know it's it scales with length to the first power. And radius to the fourth power, so something scaled to the fourth power that's that's gonna have a much, much larger effect. And just to quantify this a little bit, I wanted to see basically like how uh, <laughs> how how long the total blood vessels in your body were uh, and then compare that to how many additional miles of blood vessels are added by gaining fat and or muscle or whatever just just additional tissue uh turns out that was harder than i thought it would be like that that's not just like a handy thing that you can search on PubMed. so i googled it and a lot of sources were saying like eh, about a hundred thousand miles of blood vessels in the human body so that that seen for adults so that seems uh fairly plausible like i've seen that claim enough hopefully it's not complete bullshit because everyone's out there repeating it but then when I searched how many additional uh, miles of blood vessels you add uh, per pound of fat and or muscle, I saw numbers ranging anywhere from five miles to 200 miles, which uh, that's, a pr- that's a pretty big range. Uh, but But it's worth noting, it actually doesn't matter all that much for our purposes here. So uh, let's take the high number there. Let's say it's 200 additional miles of blood vessels uh, per pound of muscle that you gain. Um, and let's say that you're, you're talking about the, the difference of being, you know, say a, a BMI of 23 with, you know, some amount of muscle versus a BMI pushing 30 with 20 more pounds of muscle. So that's that's a large difference in muscle mass and those 20 additional pounds of muscle times 200 uh that would be an additional 4,000 miles of blood vessels based on the, the highest estimate I came across in my Google search that seems like kind of a a high a high-end type estimate. So if you already have about 100,000 miles adding a, an additional 4,000 miles you're increasing length by 4% uh which would increase resistance by 4%, which still pales in comparison to effects on vessel radius, which, you know, would be affected by things like atherosclerosis and, and just, like, artery disease in general. So basically, even with, like, a high-end scenario, when, when we're talking about a difference in muscle mass of, like, 20 pounds, you're not looking at a particularly large difference in resistance caused by those additional blood vessels. Uh... So ultimately, I, I don't think that that's that big of a difference, or that big of a thing. Like that, that mechanistic claim: you have more muscle, make your heart work harder. Uh, I, I don't think that there's great reason to believe that that would be the case. But anyway, let's uh, let's get back to this study by Settlemyer um, that actually directly looks at the topic at hand. So uh, basically is what what they did is they found uh seven prospective cohort studies that means you you take a group of people you measure things about them and then you don't actually do an intervention but you just assess them over time. And in this case they were looking at basically like <laughs> over time did people die uh and what affects uh or or how does BMI fat mass index, and fat-free mass index. How do those things associate with mortality risk in the cohorts in these seven studies? So uh, BMI is just fat mass index plus fat-free mass index. They're all you know, total body mass or total fat mass or total fat-free mass divided by height in meters squared. Um, so just FMI plus FFMI equals BMI. Uh, and, and they basically wanted to decompose uh, BMI into fat mass index and fat-free mass index and look at varying levels of those two metrics and their associations with uh, all-cause mortality. And so what they found, uh, and, and like I said, seven, seven st- uh, prospective cohort studies going into this, uh, a total of a little bit over 16,000 total subjects. Uh, what they found is as far as fat mass index goes, Pretty unsurprisingly, uh it's best for your fat mass index to be pretty low. So uh anything below about seven, it seems, is pretty good. Um the 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 hazard ratio is like slightly tailing up at really, really low numbers. So like I don't know, I, I feel like it's fairly intuitive that just being like dice to the socks all the time. Eh, probably not the best thing you can do for your health. Uh, But for the most part, as long as fat mass index is reasonably low, uh, uh, all-cause mortality is pretty low. And then once fat mass index gets above about 10 or so, there's a fairly linear relationship between fat mass index and uh, all-cause mortality rates. So once fat mass index starts getting up into the 15 to 20 range, you're dealing with hazards ratios in the 2 to 3 range. That's that's a pretty substantial elevation in risk. But then when we move over to the fat free mass index, uh, basically what we see is a pretty linear negative relationship between fat mass index and all cause mortality, such that, or, or fat free mass index. So basically, as fat free mass index increases, all cause mortality decreases uh, to about a fat-free mass index in the 19 to 20 range. And then basically from a fat-free mass index of 19 or 20 on up, it's flat. So if your fat-free mass index is 20, you're probably pretty good. If it's 22, you're probably pretty good. If it's 27, which is as high as the data went in this study, you're probably pretty good. So uh, uh, variations in fat-free mass index from about 19 or 20 all the way up to about 27 not associated with changes in all call in all cause mortality risk. So basically, uh, I, I think that this unfortunately uh, does kind of support the the bro case here that uh, for lifters BMI might be kind of dumb. Um, basically, as long as you're pretty lean, like, and we're not talking like shredded here, uh, like the 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 what what. What the levels of uh fat mass index that are associated with low relative risk here were were they would equate to body fat percentages in you know b- basically like twenty twenty five percent and below um and, and and they did include both males and females in here so probably a little bit lower for males and probably a little bit higher for females uh, but basically like as long as you're as long as you're looking at somewhat decent body comp uh, big, big is fine. Bigger isn't necessarily better. It's not necessarily worse. And so like on a, on a practical level, if you have pretty good genetics for, uh, getting big, it's not completely inconceivable that you could have a fat-free mass index of 20, like 26, still be fairly lean. Say, so you have a fat mass index of five that would come out to a, a 16% body fat, and in that case, your BMI would be 31, and this study, or this uh, analysis based on seven prospective cohort studies with a lot of subjects going in, uh, suggests that that would not be associated with elevated mortality risk. Um, your your risk there would be about the same as if your fat-free mass index was, say, 19, and your fat mass index was still 5, uh, and your BMI was 24. So... Um, yeah, this, this, I think is a, this was cool because like, I, I've seen that argument that I alluded to be had a lot by a lot of people. And I don't see people <laughs> actually dropping links to to show like, oh no, here's the independent associations between fat free mass index and BMI and fat mass index and mortality. It's, it's kind of just people making like rationalist arguments like, oh no, you get big, heart work hard, you die fast. Like that's, uh, th- that's kind of the level of discourse. <laughs> um, but no, uh, unfortunately, and this, this irks me a little bit because, uh, the chorus of comments in every comment section by all of the lifters saying, "Uh, oh, BMI is dumb and doctors are stupid. It does annoy me. Like it just irks me to see all of those comments, but like, they're kind of right. They kind of have a point. Um, as long as you're pretty lean Getting big uh, doesn't seem like it's going to negatively impact uh, all-cause mortality risk. Again, based on this study, don't take this as medical advice. All standard disclaimers apply.
0: I just think it's great that this study included rampant steroid abusers. because, <laughs> As you noted, the, the upper range of fat-free mass index was 27. Yeah. Uh, and as we know. As,
1: as we know, no drug-free person has ever been that big.
0: Yeah. I mean, it'd be great if they did, but it's just not going to happen.
1: Yeah. Very All right. Looks like you've
0: also got some cutting-edge research to discuss here <laughs> uh, about intermittent fasting and one's Myers-Briggs personality type.
1: I, I was going to save that for uh, the reveal of the bit, but that's fine. Uh, steal my thunder. I don't care. Uh, so I, I came across something on facebook the other day that i thought was absolutely hilarious i think it was a screenshot someone shared to the the macros inc facebook group uh but it's an ad from a company called do fasting uh it's a sponsored post and uh basically they're they're taking you to a page where you can take a quiz to figure out what type of intermittent fasting is best for you uh and and this is kind of like uh like OK Cupid with like their twenty-seven dimensions of compatibility, they're they're leaving no stone unturned. A a small-brained diet coach might think like, oh, someone's interested in intermittent fasting. What kind should they do? They might ask stupid questions such as, well, what fits your preferences best? Do <laughs> do you, you know? Maybe you want to do 16-8 intermittent fasting if you just want to skip breakfast. Uh, maybe if you're uh, trying to improve metabolic flexibility you might go with like a 24 like a 20 hour fast four hour feeding window to have like a longer fasting period Uh, if if you're a Brad Pilon devotee you might say like okay you're going to eat normally most days and then you're going to have two one or two 24 hour fasts per week like if that fits your preferences best so that those might be some approaches that a, a very small brained diet coach would would do you know uh, mostly ask about preferences. But no, th- this is far more scientific than that. Um, they ask about things such as uh, what is your blood type? Uh, what is your age? Because obviously different intermittent fasting approaches are more or less appropriate for people of different age ranges. There's tons of research on that that I'm sure we're all very aware of. Uh, and then also, what is your personality type <laughs> with reference to the Myers-Briggs uh, personality inventory? Uh, uh, before I get into that, I also want to note that on, on this graphic, they lay out like four different fasting options that that all of this stuff can filter you into. Um, so one of them's is 1410, which is 14-hour fast, 10-hour feeding window, which is basically just like, eat a late breakfast and early dinner.
0: And, and that adds up to 24.
1: Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah that that seems fine. Uh, another one is 12-12. That's not even intermittent fasting in my book. Like a 12-hour feeding window is a normal-ass feeding window. That's <laughs> having uh, breakfast at 9 in the morning and dinner at 9 at night. Yeah, that's 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 an unbelievably normal feeding window for someone to have. <laughs> if anything, maybe, it, maybe a tad long. Yeah, so congratulations. Everyone is intermittent fasting. <laughs> Uh, the, the next is classic lean gain style, sixteen eight sixteen 16 hour fast, eight hour feeding window, or in other words, basically just skip breakfast. But then this last one on the list here is 36, zero. So one, I did, I did not realize days had 36 hours and two, nothing seems particularly intermittent about that fast. You fast for six hours or, or you fast for 36 hours you feed for 0 hours it seems you fast for another 36 i i don't see where the feeding window goes in there
0: no that that's um i was going to point that out i'm glad you covered <laughs> that cuz i'm like there is no indica- i i want more reassurance that i will ever eat again this 360 window does not sound fun
1: yeah yeah so um <laughs> that that was the ad and, and i mostly just wanted to talk about it uh just, just so our podcast listeners will become aware that Myers Briggs is fake, um, it like it is a thing that exists, but it's also something that you shouldn't put any stock in whatsoever. So, uh, to, to the degree to which it has some degree of value, um, it, it's because like the four axes of the Myers Briggs personality inventory uh, correlate with the first four parts of the big four. So it doesn't, uh, it it doesn't account for the fifth part or or the big five. I mean, it doesn't account for the fifth part of the big five, which is neuroticism. Uh, but some, some of the parts, uh, correlate with the big five. The big five is, um, it it has a lot more research backing it up. So if you're going to choose one of the two, big five is objectively the better choice to go with. Uh and also like my Myers Briggs, I don't think a lot of people are aware the degree to which it's just like completely made up and pretty unvalidated. And I think people aren't aware just because it is so common. Like it's used in a lot of business settings, it's used in a lot of educational settings. Uh the people who developed it weren't psychologists, they weren't psychometricians. Uh they were basically just a couple people who came across Carl Jung one time, and they were just like, "Damn, dude! Like this guy has some has some sick ideas. Uh, let's just like take it and kind of like dumb it down a lot and sort people into personality types." Um, like around half of the published research supporting the use of the of the Myers Briggs test is published in a journal called the Journal of Psychological Type. Which, if you haven't heard of it, uh, that's because it's (laughs) it's not a uh, well-regarded, well-cited journal. Uh, It is uh, associated with (laughs) the Myers-Briggs test. Uh, I I think like every editor of that journal ever has been a proponent of Myers-Briggs. Like it's, it seems to be a journal that exists to launder the Myers-Briggs into the published research. and uh, here's a fun conflict of interest. You can buy Myers-Briggs personality tests on the journal's website if you want to, like, take it for yourself or, like, use it for your organization. So that's, uh, we- we've talked about on the podcast before how it seems to be an inherent conflict of interest to publish stuff about, like, uh, uh about uh, Ayurveda and, like, Journal of Ayurvedic Medicine, like, I don't know. Seems like you kind of have a a vested interest in this stuff working. I don't know. Seems weird. This is far more direct. It's like if if the Journal of Ayurvedic Medicine also sold like ashwagandha on its website, like that's that's some fly by night shit. Um, So I've seen uh, Myers-Briggs described as astrology for people with LinkedIn profiles. And honestly, I think that's a little bit too generous because like I think a lot of people who are into astrology, like don't actually believe it. They're just like in it for the vibes, you know, like it's, it, it, it's kind of like, uh, like people who are into like quote of the day type books. Like, if you've ever read astrology profiles, it's generally either just like some piece of generally inoffensive good advice or something that's just like, oh, you're a great person and everyone should know that It's it's kind of like daily affirmations. Uh, people who are like really into Myers-Briggs think it's like very scientific and seem to base like a lot of their personality around it. So if, if I had a nickel for every time I've seen someone like make a statement that's like as an ISTJ, like I find this very relatable, blah, blah, blah. Like that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's some wild shit. Anyway um
0: yeah I'm just looking at the website now you can get certified
1: <laughs> yeah yeah you you can get certified to be a myers-briggs practitioner from from this journal website that is laundering my myers-briggs ideas it's uh like that that in and of itself should uh, I- invalidate it in the minds of a lot of people if that's if that's where you got to be publishing stuff to to show that your your shit actually works. But anyway, um, yeah, I, I just, uh, I, I wanted to talk about the the uh, do fasting ad, both because the use of Myers-Briggs to determine what type of <laughs> fasting you should do, and the mere existence of 36-0 intermittent fasting. <laughs> I, I'm sure that there's some sort of explanation for that. Like, maybe it's like snake diet type shit, yeah, where it's like, yeah. fast for 36 hours, eat one big meal, but there's no explanation of that on the ad, so I, I just... Wanted to dunk on that a little bit. Uh, and just to talk about how dumb the Myers Briggs is. Again, t- to reiterate, it's not that it has no utility whatsoever, but I fail to see any utility that it has that the Big Five doesn't have. Uh Big Five is more supported, uh, contains an extra dimension, and that's the the neuroticism dimension. So like if you're someone who who's into Myers Briggs, uh just take the Big Five instead. Uh
0: Can I blow a hole in your theory here though?
1: Oh God, go for it.
0: Where can I get big five certified?
1: I have no idea.
0: Yeah. yeah. I mean, if they don't have a journal website that also (laughs) allows me to get certified then I can't actually put these ideas into practice.
1: That is true. Yeah. They, they they need to launch something like the journal of the big five. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so, so I, I just wanted to talk about that. Uh, As an ENTP, I did find it pretty absurd that people would use the Myers-Briggs to uh, recommend intermittent fasting profiles. Good
0: stuff. Um, So I want to do a Coach's Corner segment. We don't do it very often, but there's uh, a couple of things that I've just been doing lately uh, that seem to be going really well, and I figured I'd chat about it extremely briefly. But before I do that, I do want to mention, I I can't even recall, have we talked about P-ratios a lot on the
1: podcast I think we talked—oh, no, we haven't put out uh, a—well, you haven't put out a podcast episode since the article went live. Yeah,
0: so I I don't want to have like a whole big discussion about it because we've written literal volumes of literature about this topic. But a while back, I know we've at least mentioned it, the concept on the podcast, but there's this idea floating around that if you let your body fat get high— it impairs your P ratio It makes it harder to make lean gains essentially. So for if your body fat's higher then it means, uh, you know, if, if you're trying to bulk up and you gain three pounds of weight, then a smaller percentage of it is going to be lean mass. Uh, that, that's the general concept is, uh, you know, that having high body fat makes it harder to make lean gains or potentially impairs hypertrophy. Um, we don't subscribe to that theory and wrote a big article about it. And then there was rebuttals and rebuttals to rebuttals. And uh, so I, I guess just to make the listeners aware, if you're interested in that uh, particular content, there's a great deal of written, uh, written work about it that we put together in the last like two articles on the site, I think. But uh, on top of that, we recently sat down for uh, a bit of a debate. It was, You and me and Mike Isriatel and Menno Henselman's, and it was hosted by Jeff Nippard. And so if you want kind of an audio rundown of that topic and the back and forth and the different perspectives, uh, we will link that in the show notes that our listeners can also give that a listen as well. Um, Now, moving on to the coach's corner, Um, I wanted to very briefly bring some of these exercises up because I don't know if everybody else is like me, uh, and hopefully they're not, uh, but For me, exercise variations are very cyclical. It's like fashion, you know, like something becomes fashionable and then it goes away. And then like 40 years later, people are like, "Ooh, we should bring that back. I feel like I'm always cycling through variations and I'll just like forget one exists. And then I'll rediscover it later in my training career and be like, damn, that is a sick variation. I should have been doing that the whole time. And so uh, it, it goes for my own training, but also the stuff I do with clients. You know, sometimes I'll I'll get on a streak where I'm like, ooh, a lot of people are, are really liking this variation. It becomes kind of a bigger uh, a bigger part of my programming. But a few things that I've kind of rediscovered lately, first of all, it's completely because of you, but pin squats are awesome. Uh, you've been doing them a lot in your own training. You had a mass article about them. Uh, so I, I really couldn't ignore the pin squat any longer and i've had a few clients who we've been working on you know the the hips rising up really quickly uh relative to the shoulders um you know tr- trying to make sure that we're really cueing really explosive movement out of the hole keeping the shoulders coming up quickly keeping the chest up and out and the pin squats have been great for that so i've had a lot of clients who um have needed a little bit of work of ex- explosiveness out of the hole, but also just kind of cueing different uh, technique things out of the hole. And the pin squat ha- has been great for that. Another thing that's been great, uh, I've got clients who a lot of them are are training with really limited resources right now. Um, so, you know, in- instead of being at a commercial gym due to COVID, we've got some dumbbells, we got some random things around the house. And uh, one of the... L- lower body accessory exercises that's been really sick for that application is wall squats with a foam roller. So if you've never done those, you're basically uh, leaning up against the wall squatting, but you've got a foam roller kind of between your lower back and the wall. And what that does is it allows you to very comfortably slide up and down as you're squatting. And from my perspective, it feels a lot like a very suitable replacement for the hack squat machine at a gym. Uh, really, really good quad stimulus from that. Uh, my clients have been loving it. And if you're, if you're thinking like, how can I get some quad focused lower body, lower body accessories without a leg extension machine and a hack squat and a leg press when you're at home, I think that's a great one. Uh, Another thing that's been helping my clients with their squats is just really revisiting the way they grip the bar. I've had a few clients who, um, you know, you know how it is when you're squatting a lot, you'll, you'll get the elbow that's bothering you, you get the wrist, you get the shoulder, some of that upper body positioning of just resting the bar, uh, it, it can get a little bit tedious, cause some pain and irritation, but just kind of reminding people of, really, uh, first of all, switching to a false grip and getting your thumb on the other side of the bar, rather than wrapping it around the bar, putting on the same side of the bar as your other four fingers. And then really giving yourself the latitude to wedge that bar down a little lower in your palm. Just those little cues, uh, has really made a big difference for some of my clients lately. And I think sometimes people forget to, uh, to remember that you have a lot of options with how you're actually holding the bar in a squat. Like everybody thinks, oh, should I go high bar, low bar, neutral? But I mean, there's a lot more to placing a bar on your back than just high, low, middle. You know, there's a lot more to it. And messing around with squat grip has been really helpful lately. And then finally, Something that's been helping a lot of my clients with their bench is the Spoto Press. And th- that's, that's such a common accessory. I don't think it falls off the radar for many people. But if you've never given the Spoto Press a try as a bench press accessory or variation, it is absolutely sick. Uh, really, really, really great exercise. So uh, that's all I got. Those are things that every now and then I forget about them. And then I remember, I'm like, everyone needs to know about these and be reminded of them.
1: Sounds good. I, I had a coach's corner planned out too, but I, I was gonna talk about sticking points and also talk about pen squats a fair a fair bit. Uh so I, I think we can I think we can talk about that on a future episode.
0: All right. Sounds good. Uh now b- before we close things out here, I, I do want to get through some Q and A questions. Um do you wanna maybe run through a few of the Q and A questions for you and then I'll do mine?
1: Uh yeah, sure. Let's do it. So I have, uh, I, I have four, I believe, three or four. Um, so I, I solicited these from the Facebook group and the subreddit. Uh, if you're not already a member, those two places, you can go to Stronger by Science Community on Facebook or reddit.com slash r slash Stronger by Science to join the Reddit community. Um, but yeah, that, that's where I got these questions from. And I'll, I'll start with uh, some of the highly liked ones from facebook so i'm going to start with peter herguth um the question is mouth guards and performance question mark that is the full question so i am assuming uh that's asking about what are the effects of uh wearing versus not wearing a mouth guard versus versus maybe different types of mouth guards on strength performance uh because i i assume that's what most people are interested in uh, so I was able to find five studies that were potentially relevant to lifters. There, there's more total studies out there looking at, uh, various athletic things with or without mouth guards, but a, a lot of them use, uh, aerobic or, you know, like Wingate test type outcomes. Uh, so, so I found five that looked at strength and or force and or power outcomes, um, and, and they'll all be linked in the show notes. And I also came across a, a pretty recent, I think, 2018 systematic review on just like all measures of physical performance, including uh, aerobic and anaerobic endurance, uh, those types of things uh, that will also be linked in the show notes. Um, but in terms of uh, power output, force output of the five studies I was able to find, it's not worth digging into all of them individually, but basically uh, we're looking at a fairly evenly split mix of slight positive results in favor of uh, of using a mouth guard, um, and about half null findings. Really, really no effect. Um, the The idea behind wearing a mouth guard is that uh, if you're able to clench your jaw when you're trying to exert maximal force or maximal power. Um, the the like just <laughs> clinching uh feeling clinching motion will help you be able to increase force output in some other part of the body uh that that's not a completely a-, a completely wild concept so for example uh like tensing your core before you do most lifts will be able to help you increase force output a little bit even if you know, you're not necessarily doing like a core exercise, so uh, that that is a phenomenon that exists. And basically, when it when it comes to mouth guards, like you can clench your jaw a little bit harder uh, and do so with a little bit more comfort. Um, and so, yeah, it, it seems like there's a fairly even mix of eh, maybe some slight positive effects versus some measures showing no effect. Um, and so, overall, b- before I would recommend the use of a mouth guard for lifting generally. I would want to see more evidence and, and I'd want to see a more clear and consistent positive trend in the research because there are a lot of null findings in here. Um but I i would say that if you're someone who does habitually clench your jaw or grind your teeth when you're training, getting the mouth guard is probably a pretty good idea. Uh, there's no evidence I could find that it's going to hinder strength or power performance, and it may help a little bit. Uh, don't expect a, a particularly large benefit, and like I said, if you don't already clench your jaw or, or grind your teeth when you are when you train, uh, I, I don't think it's something that has enough support to recommend it for everyone all the time, but, uh, yeah, if you do already clench your jaw quite a bit, uh probably probably not a bad idea to get one. Uh, do you want me to just run through all of mine, or, or do you want to... Yeah, yeah, you, you go ahead. Okay, cool. So, another one from Facebook from Jordan Jeffers. Uh, Jordan asks, what are the connections between flexibility and hypertrophy or strength training? Uh, for example, does it help to be more flexible in the target muscle? Does it have no impact? Does it vary by muscle or exercise? So, um, th- there are a lot of rabbit holes we could go down with this question, but I'm going to keep it pretty high level. So um, to start with, if you're interested in flexibility, generally you're going to become more flexible by doing some stretching. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the potential effects of stretching itself first. Uh, As I think most people are aware of by this point, doing a fair amount of pretty intense stretching immediately before Resistance training uh, probably will have a, a negative acute effect on performance, and if it's intense enough, it might even hinder hypertrophy outcomes. However, uh, there was a systematic review published a couple years ago uh, suggesting that static stre- chronic static stretching performed you know, not in the same session as resistance training might actually improve muscular performance a little bit. Um, and th- there was also a study from like a year or two ago uh, looking at the effects of just resistance training or resistance training with with low intensity, like pretty light static stretching for agonist muscles between sets, finding that that actually increased hypertrophy a little bit. Uh, so, you know, if, if you're interested in, in flexibility, uh, you, you're probably going to be interested in stretching a little bit. And basically, as long as you're not doing just a ton of super intense static stretching immediately before your working sets. Uh, Stretching seems like it's probably going to have a, a neutral to maybe slight positive uh, longitudinal effect on strength and or hypertrophy.
0: It's interesting. We were talking about this earlier off the air, but someone needs to help stretching kind of rehab its image. Uh, it like, we, we, we recently had a mass issue go up and there, there was one that indicated that stretching was like, you know, a little bit positive when it comes to uh, the goals of a lifter. And, and people thought it was an April Fool's joke because uh, we, we released it on the first of the month uh, of the month, which, uh, you know, April 1st is internationally is April Fool's recognized. It sh- I, ha- it I have no idea. It shouldn't be recognized anywhere. I'm not a big April Fools guy myself.
1: I think the first of every month should be a Fool's Day. Uh, I, I want June Fool's Day. I want August Fool's Day. I've never come across an April Fool's joke that wasn't funny.
0: <laughs> I don't want to rain on anyone's parade here, but I find the whole thing to be a nuisance. Uh, I'm a serious boy.
1: Yeah, that, that's cuz you're 156 years <laughs> old emotionally.
0: But yeah, I mean uh it, it's funny like you you look at the literature on stretching and you, you you could say oh maybe what we were told when we were kids really oversold the benefits, but you know, it's it's neutral to slightly positive. So uh someone needs to uh help stretching re- rebrand and uh, get get a more positive uh more positive vibe out there for stretching.
1: I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, But anyway, so stretching is not inherently the same thing as flexibility. You'll you'll probably be stretching to get more flexible, but, you know, different people have different inherent uh, levels of flexibility independent of stretching. So let's talk about uh, flexibility itself as an independent variable. Uh, I, I wasn't able to at least easily come across any direct research looking at whether more flexible people are more or less likely to gain larger or smaller amounts of strength and and or muscle in response to training. Uh, but I, I think uh, th- these these are are rationalist arguments and they're they're weak. But uh, th- these are my just kind of thoughts uh, on the topic. For hypertrophy, I could see being being really flexible being maybe a slight drawback. Um, the, the reason for that uh, is that I, I think that uh, muscular tension, specifically at long muscle lengths, is pretty important for muscle growth. Uh, and, and a lot of that's just based on research looking at hypertrophy with like full range of motion training versus partial range of motion training, even if you equate for effort, the full range of motion seems to uh, I- increase hypertrophic outcomes, uh, which which is why I think that it's not just tension that matters, but uh, tension at long muscle lengths uh, being something that's pretty important. And so basically, if you were to get flexible enough that most kind of like normal resistance training movements wouldn't take you to particularly long muscle lengths for yourself, I, I could see that possibly being a, a slight drawback for hypertrophy. Um, I don't know that that would be uh, like the end of the world. So for example, um, there's the, the research that I've seen looking at, at partial versus full range of motion uh training. There've been some studies that uh like full range of motion, say for squats, is defined as like uh 90 degree knee angle, which we would often think of as like half squats, and, and that seems to uh do enough to at least cause like a pretty robust hypertrophy response in the quads. And so like I, I don't necessarily think that the important thing is tension at maximal range of motion. I think as long as range of motion is like pretty long for the given muscle, it's, it's probably sufficient. So I don't know the degree to which that would matter. And also, you know, there's there, you might be dealing with a difference there between, um, like compound versus like isolation type exercises. So for example, um, if you're interested in growing your hamstrings, And you're doing deadlifts where, you know, you're going to have some non-trivial amount of knee flexion going on, which is going to shorten the hamstrings. Maybe if you just have great hamstring flexibility and, and hamstring length is really long, you know, maybe deadlifts won't train your hamstrings at quite a long enough muscle length to maximize the hypertrophic response. But if you're interested in hypertrophy, you could instead just do RDLs, which is just pure hip hinge, very, very slight knee bend and you can make the range of motion as long as you want to take your, your hamstrings to near end range of motion. So, you know, I, I think most of those concerns, if they're even valid, uh, could probably be remedied just by differences in exercise selection. But, you know, I, I could, I could see being super, super flexible, being a slight negative thing for hypertrophy, um, and for strength, I could also see it being, I, I could see being really, really flexible, being a slight negative, not necessarily for your ability to build strength, but just around the margins when it comes to really, really top-end strength performance. So um, when you do something, like when when you uh, squat to full depth or when you uh, bench and bring the barbell down to your chest... A series of things takes place that is collectively referred to as the stretch shortening cycle. Uh, There are a lot of individual mechanisms that contribute to the stretch shortening cycle. So uh, you you can get uh, increases in muscle activation from the eccentric preload. Uh, You can get what's called an increase in muscle active state, which basically during the the amateur Amortization phase, like when you're transitioning between the eccentric and concentric, you're kind of like pre developing actin and myosin cross bridges that are already there when the muscle starts shortening during the concentric. And in the more of those cross bridges you can develop, the larger spike in initial force you can get when the concentric starts. Uh, and and obviously there are elastic components to the tendons as well. That's, that's probably the first thing that comes to mind for people when they think of the stretch shortening cycle. Um, so anyway, all of those things contribute and to some degree, at least some of them, and I'm particularly thinking of the, uh, elastic contributions here are probably enhanced a bit, uh, by going to but by getting a little bit closer to end range of motion, uh, during your eccentric. And again, same type of thing as I was discussing before, if a like quote unquote full range of motion for a compound lift isn't actually taking you all that close to end range of motion for the actual target muscles, like the prime movers, uh, you, you might potentially, be dealing with a slightly smaller contribution from the stretch shortening cycle to help you get your your concentric moving. Uh, And also just like when you get near end range of motion, uh, like passive contractile components, uh, like from the connective tissue matrix running through the muscle uh, contributes more and more contractile force as you get closer to end range of motion. Um, So, you know, I I could see... Uh, if you're super super flexible, you might have a little bit less pop uh, out out of the bottom of a lift and and maybe uh, a little bit less contribution from the stretch shortening cycle. I don't know that that's the case, but i I could see it playing out like that. Ultimately though, I don't think that's a huge, huge deal. Um, you know, so you know if if you have a really, really powerful uh, stretch shortening cycle, and let's say you can uh, produce 600 pounds of force isometrically at the bottom of a squat via the, the magic and mystery of the stretch shortening cycle. You might, you might be able to actually squat, uh, say, 630 maybe from, from that little boost that the stretch shortening cycle and, and the passive contractile contributions give you to help you get the lift started. And maybe if you have a more shitty stretch shortening cycle that doesn't contribute quite as much, maybe instead of squatting 630, you squat 615. Uh, So we're not talking about a night and day difference. And I I don't see why any of that would impact your ability to gain strength. Um, So anyway, I, I could, you could sell me on that line of reasoning to convince me that being really, really flexible could could potentially have slight negative effects on strength performance. But again, I, I don't think that it would be a particularly notable problem.
0: Yeah, so I, I have quite a few questions that I've just kind of been saving up. Uh, the first question I've got here, I believe is from Al, and it's actually two questions. Uh, first, is ATP as a supplement bioavailable and then is ATP supplementation effective for performance enhancement ATP has extremely poor bioavailability as far as i'm aware i've seen quite a few studies looking at that bioavailability you you seem skeptical greg
1: so i've seen i've seen an argument that it actually has excellent bioavailability but you can't measure it uh, so the the argument basically goes that uh, since ATP is such a universal currency that it, it moves very, very smoothly between barriers, and basically the, the argument is that as soon as it's taken up, it it's basically instantly sucked up by blood cells, like red mm-hmm. blood cells, white blood cells. Uh, and so, you know, generally you'd measure bioavailability by, you know, substance goes in your mouth and you look at rate of appearance... In in the blood, generally in plasma, um, but if it's immediately being taken up by red blood cells, you wouldn't necessarily measure it. Or you wouldn't necessarily be able to measure it the same way you would typically measure oral bioavailability. It's an interesting I, perspective. I don't. I don't know if that's true. I haven't like fully litigated that, but that that is an argument I've seen put forth in the literature.
0: In a way that kind of transitions nicely to uh looking at the performance uh perspective because i think a very good question then would be for something that is so ubiquitous and so uh easily transferred place to place and so constantly uh produced do we really stand to influence it that much from dietary supplementation you know what i mean with how much atp turnover is constantly happening and our ability to readily produce it where it's needed, are you really going to impact your ATP supply via oral supplementation in a meaningful way that's going to carry over to some kind of performance application? For that, I'm really, really, really skeptical. And there are a few studies looking at ATP supplementation uh, and, and effects on performance. There's one that reports remarkably positive results um, that has received some letters to the editor of people saying, can you help me understand why (laughs) that's the case? Uh, The rest of the studies generally show negligible impact. Uh, There are some little glimmers, like little glimpses here and there of, oh, did that actually increase reps to fatigue for this or reps to fatigue for that? Um, But in the totality, it looks hard to justify the concept that ATP as a supplement is making a big impact on performance. I maintain a really high degree of uh, skepticism because I, I just don't think that the mechanisms that I've seen put across are particularly uh, plausible. Uh, they don't make a lot of sense to me. The, the evidence empirically doesn't seem to show really reliable uh performance improvements uh, from study to study. So uh, I, I'm quite skeptical. It would take a lot more positive evidence for me to ever recommend ATP as a performance enhancing supplement. The, the mechanistic basis doesn't seem to be there. The reliability of the results study to study doesn't seem to be there. There are some instances where you can say, hey, it, it did improve one of these measures in this study, but uh, I'm more inclined to believe that those findings are spurious more than anything. Uh, There was another supplement question that came up, uh, and it was about phosphatidic acid. So Pagan Strength uh, asked the question, what's your take on phosphatidic acid? And phosphatidic acid is interesting. Um, Over the last like five, eh, I guess, 10 years or so, it, it started to be kind of one of those ingredients that would show up more and more on the advertisements. It was kind of like the the flashy new hypertrophy ingredient, and you know, it, there's always that ingredient popping up. HMB kind of played that role for a while. They were really adamant uh, marketing a lot of the uh, the leucine metabolites. Even aside from HMB, uh, you know, there was like I think KICK is one, and HICA, and it, people were getting really in, into these different uh, metabolites. But phosphatidic acid was one of the things that a lot of people were promoting for hypertrophy. And uh, my buddy Adam Gonzalez published a review paper within the last year or so where, you know, he and his colleagues reviewed a lot of the kind of newer strength and hypertrophy supplements on the block. And one of them that they looked at was phosphatidic acid. So the general premise here with phosphatidic acid is that theoretically it might facilitate hypertrophy by... uh, by stimulating the, the mTOR um, pathway, and then increasing muscle protein synthesis. And all of a sudden, you're building muscle. That, that's kind of the premise. It stimulates mTOR, stimulates muscle protein synthesis, and now you've got muscle, and you're pretty stoked about it. Um, as of uh, that review paper, there were five studies that had actually examined oral supplementation with phosphatidic acid in conjunction with resistance training. Uh, And usually it was dosed at 250 to 750 milligrams per day. And sometimes it was included alone in other cases uh, in a multi-ingredient supplement. Um, Only one using phosphatidic acid alone of those five studies reported significant improvements in strength and hypertrophy. Uh, There was another reporting some positive stuff that use a multi-ingredient blend. So there were a couple kind of hopeful, optimistic findings early on, but it it doesn't seem that there's a a really reliable finding where phosphatidic acid study after study seems to be uh, inducing, you know, really favorable benefits when it comes to strength or hypertrophy. And there was actually, it's kind of fascinating because there are some mechanistic studies, not many, but there's like one or two studies out there indicating that uh, phosphatidic acid uh, acutely as a supplement might actually interfere with intramuscular anabolic signaling. And that's really fascinating because there's some of this mechanistic stuff indicating that it should facilitate uh, these different anabolic processes within muscle, but also some isolated findings where it goes the other direction and blunts uh, some, some of those intramuscular processes that should be promoting hypertrophy. So Based on the kind of wishy-washy nature of the mes- me- mechanistic data, and based on the uh, kind of just lack of strong evidence supporting its efficacy in, in these interventions, it's another one of those supplements where I'm just really not inclined to put out a lot of enthusiasm or optimism. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to wait on the sidelines before I get too uh, hyped up about phosphatidic acid.
1: So, have you have you considered the alternate hypothesis that? Uh, phosphatidic acid just hasn't worked that well in the literature thus far because people just don't want it bad enough and maybe aren't using appropriate peri-workout nutrition to fully benefit from it.
0: I feel like you're reading something from the internet and I don't know what.
1: Uh, yeah, so I I am on the uh, biotest sales page for Micro-PA, their phosphatidic acid supplement. I love biotest uh, sales copy so much. I think it's the funniest thing. Um, so th- this, this is how I became aware of this particular supplement. But there, there's a part on the sales page. Will PA work for you? PA being phosphatidic acid. You should honestly answer the following two questions to determine if you would benefit from PA use. Do you use advanced peri-workout nutrition like plasma, trademarked, reactive pump, mag 10 registered copyright anabolic pulse and surge workout fuel as part of your training program all of them you you have to you if you're gonna optimally benefit from phosphatidic acid you need to be taking at least six other biotest supplements
0: so so how much does a workout
1: cost probably like nine or ten bucks (laughs) uh okay so that that's the first question are you using the complete BioTest line of products uh, already. If not, maybe you don't need it. Uh, And then two, are you on a well-designed training program that includes hard, parentheses, intense workout days? Question mark. BioTest recommends that you always include proper peri-workout nutrition when training and only take phosphatidic acid on hard workout days. So if you answer no to either question... You're probably not quite ready for phosphatidic acid. Oh, damn! You're, it's it's too it's too intense, and you you don't want it bad enough to fully benefit from it. Uh, so anyway, all, all I'm saying is we should teach the controversy, and there's uh, th- there's alternate ideas out there about when and for whom phosphatidic acid might be beneficial.
0: We should come out with a <laughs> dietary supplement line, but it's by application only. So, like, you have to apply <laughs> to receive the supplement, so, and if you get approved, you have to pay.
1: Yeah. So, are are you talking about just run back the BioTest Indigo three G uh, sales promotion? I have no idea what you are talking about. Did they beat me to it? Oh my god! Yes Th- this this was <laughs> this was incredible. They had like a full multimedia event based on a supplement launch. Uh, <laughs> they like hyped it up for several months. They. Uh, the the first like bottles of it they sold came in like fucking like bulletproof kevlar cases uh to to show how hardcore it was um and after they'd been hyping it up so much saying it's it's the best thing since sliced bread um if you wanted to get your hands on the first batch of it you had to send in an application and the way you could get your hands on it is they'd like fly you out to the T Nation compound and uh you you would meticulously take every T Nation supplement under the sun along with Indigo 3G. And uh Christian Thibodeau would walk you through like five workouts a day uh while you're you're benefiting from said indigo three G and and they uh they they did like a whole like video production. It was like multiple months. They had like all of the training footage filmed with like brightly colored water bottles full of like various bio test liquids prominently featured in all shots uh it it was it was the most uh produced supplement rollout i've ever seen
0: around what era was
1: this oh man that was maybe 2012 2013
0: I can't believe I missed it. I, I I feel like I really had my ear to the ground with supplements around that time, and this whole bio test thing completely escaped my.
1: Uh, uh it, it, I think it was twenty eleven.
0: Wow. Yeah. I I don't know how I missed all
1: this. Man, it was. It was intense, man. It was an insane supplement rollout, and, and it was. Uh, they'd been like teasing this thing that they're like, oh man, this is gonna change the game. It was just like some isolated compound from blueberries. <laughs>
0: uh, that's always the funny part with supplements that get overhyped <laughs> is like, you know, they they talk about it as if it's like, listen. This is some pretty heavy stuff. It's pretty intense. Uh, You know, they they treat it like it's this like controlled substance. You're like, what is it? It's like, oh, it's mushroom extract. (laughs) Found some mushrooms. This is in it. Um, All right. So this one is a good one. It comes up all the time. Uh, So Nick likes to train and he also likes soda. And so he knows on a population level, sugary drinks are associated with a whole bunch of health problems And the question was like, mechanistically, what's going on here? And if I'm someone who's healthy and I'm working out and training and maintaining a healthy body weight, but I just like soda, is the soda actually going to be bad for me? Uh, And and that's a really good question. And over the last couple of years, I think we've gotten a lot more clarity when it comes to uh, not just giving a practical answer, but actually digging in and doing some studies to figure out mechanistically what's going on there. And, you know, from looking at the literature, and I'll, I'll post a couple of links in the show notes, it, it looks like the, the biggest issue here when it comes to fructose is, or, or sugary drinks, I should say, is first of all, they tend to be pretty high in fructose. And fructose, coupled with inactivity, puts the liver in a pretty tight spot. And that ultimately is what contributes mechanistically to a lot of the negative things we associate with uh, sugary beverages. Of of course, aside from just being in a a calorie surplus, that's kind of the easy thing. So uh, of course, if you have a ton of sugar in your diet, that's just kind of adding and adding and adding to an excessive calorie surplus, uh, then that's going to have its own independent impact. But uh, what's really fascinating is that fructose specifically gets metabolized a little bit differently than glucose. And, uh, that has ramifications for the liver and, uh, you know, glycemic control and blood lipid responses after that consumption. And so a few recent studies have looked at, well, what happens if you're taking in these huge amounts of fructose, but you're not in a calorie surplus or you're super active. So you're, you're actually clearing a lot of, uh, fuel sources out of the liver on a day-to-day basis because you're using carbohydrate with physical activity and you're not just accumulating a bunch of excess energy in the form of sugar. And what those studies have largely found is that extra sugar, uh, particularly coming from fructose, doesn't seem to be a huge deal uh, as long as you're relatively weight-stable and relatively active. Uh, so for for example, in, in one study they had 10 healthy people taking in 150 grams a day of fructose, which is a ton. So like table sugar is 50% fructose, or yeah, 50% fructose. So to get 150 grams of fructose from table sugar, we're talking 300 grams of sugar. Uh, High fructose corn syrup, I think a lot of people are under the misconception that most of the high fructose corn syrup out there is like 90% fructose that's really not the case. Most of it's about 55% fructose, 45% uh, glucose. Uh, so the, the practical differences uh, b- between 55% fructose, corn syrup, and table sugar, uh, very, very minimal. But, but yeah, so if we're talking 150 grams of fructose, that's a hell of a lot of sugar in your diet. And they were, f- they were fed this 150 extra grams of fructose per day for eight weeks, and you know they looked at a whole host of potential issues related to uh, you know the liver, l- looking at all sorts of metabolic qu- uh, consequences that may result from excess fructose intake, and everything was fine. So so for these young folks who were weight stable, that's the key during that study. Uh, they really didn't have any negative ramifications from that huge intake of fructose, um, and there was also a study looking at physical activity. So for 14 days uh people were given uh 75 extra grams of fructose a little bit more you know possible intake without going really far out of your way to get a bunch of sugar in the diet like 75 grams of fructose a day is still a high dose but i mean you know 150 grams of fructose is a ton but uh, anyway 75 extra grams uh for 14 days and they did this on two different occasions uh, on one occasion, they had low physical activity, so 4,500 steps per day, which, uh, I mean, I- I'm in isolation quarantine mode, and that's, yeah, that that's uh, hitting close to home uh, right there with that step count, but they also did the same intervention in a different uh, condition where they had high physical activity, and it was 12,500 steps per day. Uh, so so those are the two conditions there, uh, pretty big discrepancy in physical activity level. And that extra 75 grams of fructose, yeah, you know, it, it had some negative impacts uh, when they were in the low physical activity uh, condition, but it was completely blunted, completely alleviated when they were in the higher physical activity condition. Um, so I, I think the picture when it comes down to sugar and fructose, it, it really has to be contextualized. And the question is, if your weight's stable and you have a pretty high activity level, is it something that really ought to be worried about? And in my, in my opinion, based on the data, it's probably not a big deal. I I think the biggest, uh, the the biggest consideration is making sure that your total energy intake is suitable for your activity level. Um, and that you're generally being active, not just for managing, uh, the, the fructose load that you're bringing in, but just to, generally be good to your body, you know, high physical activity level, within reason, you know, without going way on the higher ends of, you know, just constantly moving around the entirety of your day, we generally want to have some degree of physical activity in our day to day schedule. So personally, I really wouldn't worry about it. If your weight stable at a healthy body weight, and you're physically active, I, I don't think there's any huge reason to be overly restrictive when it comes to. Uh, sugar sweetened beverages. However, big caveat, first of all, I'm no dentist, but I've heard it can be kind of bad for your teeth to drink a lot of soda. So, you know, maybe that's important to you. But like I said, I don't know anything about it, not a dentist. Uh, But another thing is you want to make sure that you're not displacing important nutrients from your diet. So you might say, well, I'm weight stable, I'm on a low calorie intake, but I'm drinking a bunch of soda. Well, if your calories are low, and you're drinking a bunch of soda, you might be struggling to get in you know, plenty of fiber, vitamins, minerals, and otherwise good stuff that would typically come with a lot of other carbohydrate sources. So as long as you're not displacing important stuff from your diet, and as long as you're maintain a, maintaining a healthy body weight, not in a huge surplus, and you're physically active, I, I think you're probably
1: pretty okay. Makes sense to me. All right, so uh, Willow Barker 17 asks... Uh, or starts by stating, would love to hear your thoughts on neck strength and its relationship to likelihood of receiving a concussion. I always see the, quote, Collins et al. 2014, close quote, study preached by contact sport coaches, saying, for every pound of neck strength, odds of concussion is reduced by 5%. I'm just too stupid to figure out if this is true, and if so, to what extent. Um... So yeah, uh, asking about neck strength and uh, risk of concussion. So once again, I, I previously gave a, uh, a disclaimer that I'm not a doctor, so don't take what I have to say about uh, fat-free mass index and mortality risk as medical advice. I am also not, I don't know, a physical therapist, brain trauma person, uh, neuroscientist. Wh- yeah, what? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a. I'm not, a, not much
0: of anything now now that I think about I'm,
1: it. I'm really not. Yeah. Uh, I have no no formal expertise whatsoever. Uh, so don't don't take anything I say uh too seriously at all. But um But yeah, so uh let's let's talk about uh this topic, whether having a bigger stronger neck will actually reduce your risk of concussions
0: you are a concussion aficionado I think uh,
1: yeah so uh, you know there, there's a difference between <laughs> book book learning and experiential <laughs> learning and maybe I don't have that that much of that their book learning when it comes to concussions but I have I'm probably in the top like one percentile globally when it comes to hands-on experience with concussions in the uh, trenches. Experience, <laughs> yeah, uh, both both with giving and receiving them. Uh, don't lead with your head, kids. <laughs> 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 anyway, um, so yeah, uh, the the question referenced a study by Collins and colleagues from 2014. Uh, And and that is basically a direct quote from the study. For every pound of neck strength, uh, concussion risk decreases by 5%. That was the headline finding of that study. Um, But instead of just focusing on that, I think it's worth noting that there are more studies that have been conducted that have looked at uh, the association between neck strength or even the effects of neck training on concussion risk or uh, various, like, head acceleration-related variables during contact that might predispose someone to, to uh, brain trauma. Um, so yeah, uh, there there was a 2018 uh, review by Honda and colleagues that's going to be linked in the show notes uh, that, that looks at several things. So it looks at uh, the impact of neck strength and neck training on concussion risk, uh, but it also looks at uh, vision training and, and uh, reaction time and, and reaction time type training on concussion risk as well. Those are some other things that, that can, uh, you know, go into the whole picture of concussion risk. But it, it has a, a, a nice section on uh, the impact of neck strength and neck training on concussion risk. And here is a choice quote directly from that review. So, um... Uh, according to the literature, there are inconclusive results for neck strength preventing concussions. In basketball, lacrosse, rugby, and soccer, increased neck strength seems to lead to fewer concussions, but in hockey and football, neck strength does not seem to affect concussions. Researchers concluded anticipating a head impact and allowing the cervical neck musculature to brace for the impact reveals less head movement and acceleration following the head impact, which may lead to less concussions. So here I think is is the basic takeaway. Uh, In sports where collisions and head impacts are just fucking huge, so American football and hockey, it may not really matter all that much how strong your neck is because the head trauma is just so great that necks don't get that strong. (laughs) And uh You know, having a big, strong neck probably isn't going to hurt you, but you're just hitting heads too hard at too high of speeds with too large of people uh, that maybe it just doesn't make that big of a difference. Uh, You know, this goes back to something. This is one of my little like bugaboos. Um, Helmets make football so much more dangerous uh they really do because you can use them as a weapon and, and i understand uh why they're there like from a fan perspective like you know if someone say like takes a a slash to the face or something or side of the head like it looks bad as a fan to see blood coming out of someone's head or or all over someone's face like that looks like it should be pretty serious and they bleed a lot uh, uh- lacerations oh, in, like yeah. the face or the scalp yeah, ble- highly vascularized yeah bleeds a ton uh so it, it looks really bad but like ultimately like scratches heal up uh brain trauma long term doesn't seem to actually fully heal up that well no. uh so yeah you, you give someone a helmet uh they're, they're going to take on more head impacts than they would if they didn't have a helmet but anyway um yeah, yeah, football and hockey it probably doesn't hurt to have a strong neck, but it could just be that the human neck cannot become strong enough to to deal with the demands of those sports. Uh, I find that very plausible. However, uh, it did seem like having a stronger neck in sports that don't have as absurd of head trauma, so basketball, lacrosse, rugby, and uh, s- football everywhere else in the world, what we would call soccer, Uh, It does seem like having a stronger neck does uh, reduce concussion risk in those sports where uh, (laughs) head trauma is not as severe. So I I do think this paints the overall picture that neck training is good for reducing concussion risk, uh, even though it it may not actually end up reducing risk in uh, football and hockey, is, is, again, it's it's still probably not a terrible idea to do some neck training. And for other sports, it, it will probably be beneficial. Um, but it's also worth noting that simply having a stronger neck probably doesn't fully address the issue. One of the other things they talk about in this review is that if you are more aware that a large impact is coming and you can uh, you know see that in time to be able to brace your neck well... That's going to basically make your head whip less, less accelerative forces, uh, and that can lessen the the total head trauma that you experience. Um, And so in addition to strengthening your neck, uh, it's probably not a bad idea to just work on improving general awareness of of the playing space you're working with, the court or the field, uh, and, and doing some maybe reaction time training so that, you know, if if you see that person coming out of the corner of your eye you can you can brace your head or brace your neck well enough uh before impact actually comes to to be able to protect yourself a little bit uh so yeah neck training eh, probably a good thing if head impacts are intense enough maybe it's not going to make that big of a difference um but also like improving your general awareness and reaction times uh, should work synergistically with having a stronger neck to uh, reduce your concussion risk. Okay, and the last question uh, I'm going to address is by Bikini underscore Car Wash, who says, I'd love to hear about modifying programming based on caloric intake, specifically whether volume intensity or frequency should be titrated based on whether one is cutting or bulking. Also, if doing alternating strength blocks and hypertrophy blocks whether one should coincide with cutting and the other with bulking or vice versa. Bro science dogma is, quote, don't change your program, but I'm not sure if there is any good evidence out there to support that. Uh, That last sentence there is pretty prescient. Uh, There is not good evidence out there to support this either way. Um, This is one of the common arguments that you'll see in the evidence-based health and fitness space. If you're in a calorie deficit, should you try to maintain volume while maybe sacrificing intensity a little bit? Should you try to maintain intensity while maybe sacrificing volume a little bit? One of the reasons why that can be such a robust argument and topic for discussion is that there's really no good direct evidence on the topic. Uh, I'm not aware of any study where they say like, okay, we're going to put two groups of people in a controlled calorie deficit. One of them... Uh, you know, we're, we're going to start them on the same training program. And as performance decreases, as this diet progresses, one of the groups, we're going to maintain volume while sacrificing intensity. And the other group, we're going to maintain intensity while sacrificing volume. That would be an ideal study. I haven't seen that or really anything even comparable to it be done in the literature. So th- this is an open question, um, um, My personal perspective on it is that um, a lot of it's just going to come down to how large the deficit or surplus is. Uh, We're going to mostly talk about deficit. I mean, surplus, like things that work at maintenance should just work better in a surplus. Uh, So when you're talking about a deficit, I think the two things that matter is uh, how large is that deficit and how lean are you already? Uh, if you have a fair amount of fat to lose and it's a pretty modest deficit, I don't think you really need to make any proactive changes to your training approach because at least for like a pretty solid while, uh, a small deficit with a fair amount of fat to lose shouldn't really impact your training all that much in the first place. Uh, certainly not enough to make large proactive changes. Uh, it may be worth modifying your training if, you either are already lean and you're trying to get considerably leaner, or if you are intentionally taking a more extreme approach to dieting, like let's say you're going on a protein-sparing modified fast or something like that, you've you've presently been doing pretty high-volume training, you kind of size it up and say, I don't think I'll be able to survive this level of training with 800 ca- calories per day and no carbs. Uh, in a situation like that, I think your best bet, honestly, is to just kind of like lean in the direction of the training that uh, causes the smallest fatigue burden for you. So for some people, uh, reasonably high volumes really trash them, but like high intensity stuff, yeah, generally pretty fine. And on the flip side, some people... You know, you get much above 85% of your max, you start grinding triples, uh, now you're having issues recovering, you feel like shit all the time, but like higher volumes go down pretty smooth. Like I, I think just how people respond to different training variables differs quite a bit, and I think that if you're in a situation where recovery is going to be limited, either due to the fact that you're already pretty lean or or that your deficit is pretty large, I think you should just kind of lean towards the variable that causes the smallest fatigue burden for you. So for me personally, uh, volume fucks me up. So like, I'm going to cut volume, but try to maintain intensity pretty well. Uh, other people, you know, the the intensity may fuck them up more, so they'd try to maintain volume more. I, I think that that's, I think that's largely a personal preference decision. Um... And ultimately, I think for the most part, unless you're taking a pretty extreme approach, your best bet is to be reactive rather than proactive, basically because you're not going to be able to perfectly predict the degree to which, say, a small to modest calorie deficit will impact your ability to train and recover. Uh, Once you start training, you will figure that out. It may not have an impact at all. It may have... A modest impact may have a fairly large impact. So I, I think your best bet is to basically roll into it with the style of programming that has previously been working for you pretty well, uh, and then know anticipate that you're probably going to need to make changes eventually, uh, and and basically just scale the magnitude of those changes with the the magnitude of the difficulties you're running into. Like if You get four months into a diet and now you're having issues recovering, but it's not huge issues. Like, you know, maybe you can bump intensity down 5% or dial volume back by like one set per exercise per week and you'll be pretty good. Uh, If you, you know, even go into a pretty modest deficit, but two weeks in, you feel absolutely crushed. Okay, now that's information suggesting that maybe you should make larger reactive changes to your training program. But I think that, Largely, unless you're doing something pretty extreme, again like a protein sparing modified fast or something similar, uh, it it pays to be reactive rather than proactive because you're you're not going to be able to perfectly forecast uh, how much a, a deficit's going to affect you.
0: Yeah, I think another thing to keep in mind is something that we often forget, which is. There is good evidence that we can maintain some pretty nice training adaptations while dropping volume. Um, So this often comes up, uh, like obviously my background is in bodybuilding. And so you know you're going to be doing some pretty extreme stuff at the end. You're going to be getting as lean as a person would want to get. Your calories are going to be very low. Your performance is going to be hit by that. You're you're not going to go and say, actually my high rep performance and my top end strength are both doing fine. Like you're not going to find that a lot. And so for me, when I, when I manipulate my training in that context, I often think, first of all, it's not just what is harder to recover from, but what can I actually complete in the gym? What, what aspect of my performance can I actually maintain as I get toward the end of this pretty nasty process. And so for me, my higher rep, uh, my higher volume work seems to really suffer. I, I often have to cut my rep ranges down and I often have to drop my number of sets because there's just from an energetic, a bioenergetic perspective, there's nothing left. Uh, maybe I should be using ATP supplements or something like that, but I, I've got nothing left. And and so I often have to err toward higher intensity, lower volume approaches than my off season. But I, I do find it reassuring that we, we there's some pretty solid evidence out there that you can drop volume pretty, pretty substantially and maintain what you've got. So that that's kind of a short term solution. That's more maintenance focused than progress focused. But if you find yourself in a pretty similar scenario or you're toward the tail end of a pretty hard cut, um, that that is a body of literature that provides some reassurance now big caveat is that th- that literature doesn't involve a calorie deficit um uh, so we are kind of taking uh literature from what i assume to be pretty uh energetically neutral conditions probably around energy balance and applying that to a caloric deficit in this case. But I, I do still expect that the general principle should hold up pretty well, uh, even when transitioning it from one context to the other. So so that's uh, my, my perspective on the topic, just from the exact place I find myself in when weighing that is, you know, usually, uh, it's just a matter of what can I actually accomplish in the gym effectively? And what am I sacrificing when I cut that volume? I know, I've talked to Helms about this as well, and I know he and I have a similar approach and we start really pushing those, those uh, fat loss efforts, we, we often tend to drop some of the fluff, some of the extra volume, the accessory work, just to make the workouts a little bit more manageable. Okay, uh, I think that does it uh, for this episode. We should be, uh, should be ready to play us out here. So what do you have for us this week?
1: Do you have anything?
0: I don't. I have absolutely nothing.
1: That's very interesting since this is your podcast, but yeah. uh, that's fine. I, I can I can pick up the torch and carry us over the finish line. So I, I've got a couple food-related things, as has uh, kind of become the general theme of the To Play Us Out segment. The first is a recipe recommendation. So um, I, I came across a recipe for... Olive oil blondies by Sola L. Whaley on YouTube uh, from Food 52. Uh, we can link that video in the show notes. They are exceptional. They are so good. Um, What's a blondie? Th- th- there's some in the fridge right now. You can have one when we're done recording. Oh, huh. it's uh, it- It's kind of the same vibe as a brownie. So it's uh it's like dense and chewy instead of cakey, but it's it's not made with chocolate. Um. But anyway, so instead of using butter as the as the primary fat in the recipe, it uses olive oil. And uh, I don't think I'd ever ha- no th- that's a lie. I was gonna say I, I didn't think I'd ever had an olive oil based dessert before. I, I have had an olive oil cake, which was which was good, but didn't really blow me away. But these these olive oil blondies blow me away. They're so good. Uh, something about the the, the alchemy that takes place between the olive oil and the brown sugar uh, really brings out the floral notes of the olive oil. Um, and it's it's a very interesting flavor and it works it works so well and it's one of the first like truly new tastes that I've had on my palate when it comes to desserts in a long, long time. Uh, I'm not someone who's particularly big on sweets. I I got very fat from eating a lot of cheeseburgers, not necessarily like pastries and whatnot. That's, that's not generally how I roll. This is the first, uh, sweet confection I've had in a while where just like the hedonic drive kicks in and I want to eat like the whole pan. They're, they're very, very good. Um, so yeah, we we can link that in the show notes. And
0: something about that, just olive oil is weird. I, I like olive oil, but I wish its flavor were turned down about 40%. You know, what I mean? like sometimes the olive oil, whenever I'm cooking with it, it just hits a little too strong and it's it's a little much for me. I, I don't know how I would handle that in a dessert.
1: Well, so I mean, it, it's cut with uh, a, a fair bit of brown sugar and a lot of flour, both of which like mute the really strong olive oil flavors
0: well i'll give it a try i'm open-minded but i'm very nervous hearing olive oil as a sweet dessert
1: fair enough uh anyway so, so it's it's very good you you should at minimum check out the video they were very tasty uh the other thing on on a much a much healthier food note um i don't think i mentioned this on the podcast before but uh i've been meal prepping more um and so, you know, just basically cooking in bulk things that are pretty macro friendly. And I've been saving all of those things to my saved stories on Instagram. And so basically, if you're if you're if you're interested in food prepping something that has pretty decent macros uh, that might be a little bit more exciting than chicken and rice, if that's you know, if, if you've been meal prepping the same basic foods for a long time and, and you want something just new to, to keep it fresh uh, in recent weeks, we've made ZD. We've made uh, taco casserole, which uh, basically came out as like, uh, uh, oh, what's it called? Hamburger Helper. Like it, it, had strong hamburger Helper vibes. It was very good. Uh, pizza this week. Uh, pizza. That looks good. That looked really good. You can have a slice. It's it's pretty solid. Uh, we made dumpling casserole. Like it. it tastes very, very reminiscent of like a Chinese pork dumpling. Uh, and last week we made cottage pie, which also came out really, really well. So uh, recipes for those things and, and videos walking you through step-by-step of how to make them uh, and the nutrition information for them. Uh, you can find all of that stuff on my safe stories on my personal Instagram account uh, if if you want something to uh, to make meal prep a little more fresh.
0: Those stories are, are really... I mean... Some of them, I think, are very referential to some of the stuff I make, but, um, I, I can, and referential is being kind, and you know that. I,
1: I I can promise you that it's not.
0: I think I'm being more than charitable, but okay. Um, but no, that if if you are not like me and you want to get a little bit more exploratory and adventurous with your meal prep, uh, they're really creative creative ways to make macro-friendly food for the entire week, which is, which is I think, a really valuable thing to put out there. Um, speaking of putting valuable things out there, we're back. It's season four, so uh, that does it for this episode, but we will be, be back in a couple weeks. Uh, as always, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening. And we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.